Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Jen McCarran, and I'm going to talk about some yoga stuff and stuff that applies to me, because, like I said, what else do I have to talk about? Um, today I wanted to talk about something I read in this book by Eckhart Tolle. It's called A New Earth Awakening to Your Life's Purpose. And I like the book. It makes a lot of sense. I also don't agree with Eckhart Tolle pretty often. And as somebody who identifies with my intellectual mind and was in grad school and so forth, I get a little mad when he makes these theoretical jumps. Um, I'm going to read a little bit from it. You'll see. Uh, I just wish he would explain a little more about how he knows things, if it's just from his intuition and observation. Uh, then again, I haven't written, re, re, written, read too closely. Um, maybe he says that. I don't know. He just uh, tends to make a lot of statements that seem like he just really knows this and believes it, and you should believe it too. And I don't like that. Um, but anyway, I do like his idea. He talks in Chapter 5 about the pain body, and he talks a little bit about uh, inner speech, and that's the voice that you have in your head. Um, maybe you're lucky enough not to have a voice in your head. I do, not in the sense that it's a voice that I don't identify with. It's me talking to me, saying, you need to eat all the spinach in your... Uh, CRISPR before it goes bad, or you're a bad person, grr, or, um, you need to go jogging five times this week, or, um, oh, all, all kinds of different things, uh, kind of taking me out of the present moment, thinking about the past or the future, oh, you shouldn't have said that, as you can see, most of my examples are negative, because uh, that's the pattern of my mind, that's what... I recognize as the thoughts in my head. Uh, and I do recognize them. I, I would probably be thinking if someone played them back to me, you know, versus somebody else's, I'd be able to identify mine. But that's only because uh, I had a chance to sit down and observe and listen to them. And that happened through yoga, it happened through meditation. And it happened through some studying. Uh, I learned about, well, I can't remember his name now. There's a book called Inner Speech. Um, but it was something I learned about in grad school in audiology. Because me and my partner got really interested in the kind of inner speech that a deaf person might have. So whereas I walk around with this sort of plague in my head of this voice of mine talking to me, um, would a deaf person somehow be immune to that? What would they experience? I have a hard time believing that just because you can't manifest speech uh, in a listening sense, it doesn't translate to that, that you wouldn't kind of have this inner dialogue. I just wondered what form it would be in. And I don't think I ever got a clear answer to that. Uh, but I just from talking to people on the internet, talking, typing, you know, reading posts from deaf people, they do experience dialogue and inner thought. Um, the reason this interested me is because I 
notice when my inner speech, my inner thoughts are negative, I feel bad. Um, and I'd be really surprised to find someone who didn't. I mean, my experience is so strong that I would be shocked if someone said, oh yeah, my inner speech makes me feel great all the time. Like, it's so positive and I'm always uh, uplifting myself and telling myself what a good job I'm doing about things. Uh, I know that marathon runners and runners in general have told me that they use, uh, you know, positive mantras and positive thinking to get them through. It just always sounds like a little bit unnatural, you know, you think of your own mantra, you can do it, you can do it, um, or whatever, somehow it all, almost, always gets done. Um, that's a, one from a PhD student. But anyway, those are things you have to kind of like give to yourself. It doesn't seem natural to have positive inner thoughts. And so I really wonder why that is. Another fascinating aspect of that to me is that the inner thought that that somehow we create, or I create anyway, inside my mind that I have the sensation of hearing causes a negative reaction in my body. Um, after a period of really beating up on myself about something, I'm tired. Like you would be if someone was yelling at you. Um, you feel like eating some comfort food or you know, just whatever. If I'm jogging and this starts up, that's why I listen to music when I'm jogging. If the negative thoughts come up and they're noisy like that, I have to stop. I literally have to, I don't like make myself stop, but I notice I have this little timer on my hand. And when I start thinking about, oh man, I screwed up yesterday. I forgot to do this or that. And then I look down at the timer, I'm suddenly going much slower. Um, and that's like a, a easy example. I think my allergies are related to it, but in general, you know, a pattern of bad thinking causes me to feel not so good on the inside. Um, and I'm really glad that I know that about myself. Something that sort of gave me credence to this idea that learning about yourself and your thoughts and what they are uh, was learning about um, the eight-limbed path of yoga. And I can't pronounce things right, forgive me, but Svadhyaya. That's one of the practices. I talked about Santosha last time. Those, that's one of the practices, Svadhyaya. And it means study of the self. I've also seen it written or translated as study of spiritual literature or spiritual practices as they apply to yourself. Um, but anyway, I literally did study myself and, and listen to these thoughts. And luckily, I had an extremely smart person to talk it over with. And there are times now, indeed, when I hear these negative thoughts happening, and I won't give voice to them. I won't speak them. I, I refuse to identify with them. The voice that's saying, like, uh, you don't really love anyone. You're just completely self-centered. Uh, that's something that I say to myself, you know, I don't know where that negativity is coming from, but that's not me. I do care about people. And so as much as that might be like knocking on the door to come out my mouth and to apply to myself, I kind of, through discussion, learned that that, that wasn't me. And the way that happened was, was in relationships, you know, kind of going, well, I don't know what I want in this relationship. I think I want to be 
um, single again or something. This was a long time ago. And my boyfriend at the time was like, well, like really, you know, I want you to think about that and listen to yourself. You know, who's saying this? What, what kind of life would actually come out of what you're talking about? And without going into too much detail, I was saying, you know, I want to be single in the sense that not like, oh, I want to go find a, another partner because you're not fulfilling. It was like, oh, I want to go out to bars and, and lead a potentially unhealthy emotional and physical lifestyle was something that, you know, I thought was cool at the time. Everyone goes through that period. So I was avoiding a really good relationship for this desire in my mind of like, oh, you ought to be out getting validation for being sexy because you're 22 and so forth. Um, so when I actually spoke that out loud and said, well, yeah, I don't know if I want to be in this relationship. I want to be single again and be able to do the things I want to do. And having all, all of this kind of background to it, there was a discussion about, now wait a minute, think about what you're saying and where is this coming from. I realize this isn't the best example because a lot of people will think like, oh, your boyfriend was just threatened and he didn't want you to leave him. That wasn't the case though. Uh, it's really hard to explain. But that particular conversation and that particular moment really like clicked the light bulb onto me and go like, wait a minute. Not all of my thoughts are equally valid. I have a lot of thoughts that if I just followed them and spoke them, boy, I'd be a huge asshole. Like, like, but, but it's just because they're my thoughts doesn't mean I have to act on them or say them. I, I guess saying it now sounds like, oh, you must have been pretty stupid. But, um, no, it, it was just uh, a light bulb moment, an aha moment, I guess you could say. So what continues to fascinate me about these negative thoughts and also kind of plague me is that I have the negative thoughts and then I feel crappy. So when I read about Eckhart Tolle's pain body, I really, this struck home to me because it sounds, it sounds like me. So bear with me, I'm going to read for a little bit. This podcast probably going to be longer than the last one. Okay, he says, the greater part of most people's thinking is involuntary, automatic, and repetitive. It is no more than a kind of mental static and fulfills no real purpose. Strictly speaking, you don't think. Thinking happens to you. The statement, I think, implies volition. The voice in the head has a life of its own. Most people are at the mercy of that voice. They are possessed by thought and by the mind. And since the mind is conditioned by the past, you are then forced to reenact the past again and again. When you are identified with that voice, you don't know this, of course. If you knew it, you would no longer be possessed because you are only truly possessed when you mistake the possessing entity for who you are. That is to say, when you become it. Uh, then in another section of this chapter, he says, in addition to the movement of thought, although not entirely separate from it, there is another dimension to the ego, emotion. This is not to say that all thinking and all emotion are of the ego. They turn into ego only when you identify with them and they take you over completely. That is to say, when they become I. Uh, let's see. So he goes on to explain that Emotion 
is different from a physical reaction. When cornered, you have fear, but when the car is stolen and you're thinking, my car has been stolen, uh, the emotion that comes up is related to the thought of my car has been stolen and the immediate story of, why would someone do this to me? What am I going to do? How am I going to get it back? Do I have enough insurance? Like, that's, um, your emotion comes up because of that story that's happening behind the scenes. He says, indirectly, an emotion can also be a response to an actual situation or event, but it will be a response to the event seen through the filter of a mental interpretation, the filter of thought that is to say, through the mental concepts of good and bad, kind of what I just explained about the car. He goes on to say, although the body is very intelligent, it cannot tell the difference between an actual situation and a thought. It reacts to every thought as if it were a reality. It doesn't know it is just a thought. To the body, a worrisome, fearful thought means, I am in danger. And the body responds accordingly, even though you may be lying in a warm and comfortable bed at night. Sound familiar to anyone? The heart beats faster, muscles contract, breathing becomes rapid. There is a buildup of energy, but since the danger is only a mental fiction, the energy has no outlet. Part of it is fed back to the mind and generates even more anxious thoughts. The rest of the energy becomes toxic and interferes with the harmonious function of the body. So he's describing a feedback system between the body, thought, and emotion. So we react with, we, the body reacts to an emotion which is created based on our judgment, um, which is created by a thought. So there implies there has to be some judgment of good and bad for an emotion to create. In this sense, we're talking of the negative, then it comes into the body and creates this heart beating faster, muscles contracting, breathing rapid. So I guess what's fascinating me at first was like, wow, if, if I could somehow completely drown out the negative thought, would I be able to stop my body from reacting? Um, but it turns out it's a lot harder to modify the thoughts than it is to modify, for me anyway, the bodily part, or the physical part of that feedback loop. Um, and that's what yoga does for me. When I'm practicing, excuse me, <laughs> when I'm practicing, I can, my mind doesn't necessarily stop with this negative barrage. It doesn't necessarily turn off. It doesn't necessarily find complete focus. However, I put my effort into making my body feel good, um, making my body feel good in a sustainable way. Um, so that's the way the body only really feels good, I would say. So I'm calming my body. I'm using control of my breath. A lot of people say, oh, the breath is not to be controlled and whatnot. Um, but for somebody like me, I need some aspect of control to break this feedback loop. So when I'm practicing yoga, ah, okay, my body is being um, nourished. Sometimes yoga is really hard, and for beginners, I think this is the hardest part when you're just going, wait, I thought this was supposed to make me feel good, and I'm really struggling, and, uh, you know, I, I don't want to continue. And I would say to you, if you can use that like any other challenge, if you can continue in spite of that and begin to find the ease in your body, if you're anything like me, you can stop some of the negativity in your mind. Because, like Eckhart Tolle describes, it is a feedback loop. 
the negative feelings in the body give rise to negative thoughts and emotions and vice versa. So when you practice yoga, you calm the body, make it feel good. This is the same way like massage works, smoking pot. Uh, you can calm the things of the body, or I guess I don't even know pot. I don't even want to bring it up because it's such a touchy subject for some people. But yeah, um, that's another one of the reasons why I practice yoga because it helps my mind have a break. It stops that feedback loop and just thank God for it. Uh, there was one other thing I wanted to say in this podcast. So I did want to talk a little bit about the Yoga Sutras. And those were written by Patanjali and I don't know when, 5,000 years ago, got comparable. But uh, I guess from what I know is that he wrote these so that he could take the yogic knowledge of his time and the Vedas and give to uh, other people in a more understandable and, and uh, put together, concentrated way. So, um, one of the, the, I think it's the first, the second Yoga Sutra, um, in the first chapter, the second verse, I guess, is the restraint of the modifications of the mind stuff is yoga. So modifications of the mind stuff is that fluctuating, oh, my mind's doing this now, my mind's doing that now, is this in the past trying to figure things out, is this in the future trying to figure things out. Um, when you get a handle on that mind stuff, ah, then you have yoga. You have union of, of a happy mind and body, I would say, not this union of the mind and body. That actually happened to me when I first started practicing. I was going, man, I, I think I want to stop because my body started, I started noticing everything in my body. But the idea is that now I can kind of have a little bit more ability to modify that. And for me, I work from the outside in. I use the yoga to modify my mind, stuff, the physical yoga, the asana. That's what you do when you go to the gym, when you go to a yoga studio, you do asana. That's another one of the limbs, the eight limb path. The ones I've been talking about before were part of the practices in Niyamas, or however you would pronounce that. Anyway, I use asana. I work from the outside in. Other people work from the inside out. They use the mind to affect the body. Um, for some reason, that works for me. I'm um, using the outside in. So, I invite you, beginners, if you're struggling, to continue. And, and Practice the easy poses, too. Practice the ones that give you satisfaction. Maybe they're not easy. Maybe you get crow pose, and you might go through this um, crazy fluctuation of your mind going like, well, from what I know of the yoga sutras and yoga in general, I'm not supposed to feel good about this because I just achieved something, and it's not the achievement that counts. In a sense, you're right if you're having all that, but live in the good feeling. Not just the achievement, the goodness, the uplifted-ness that you feel in your body, let that feed your mind. Um, one last example I have to give about this is that one of the most powerful experiences I ever had in meditation was so simple. My teacher told me this was a group class at a gym in, in a university. He said, imagine what it feels like when you love someone. Like, Think of somebody you love and think of you just giving them your love and saying, Oh, I love you so much and, and I'm so happy that you're here with me. And take that feeling 
um, take that feeling and let it come into your body. Imagine that situation and then pause, notice your body. What's the body doing? And if you can sort of get a signal for yourself, we use, we use a lot of roses in that class. So we sort of like put that feeling into a particular color rose. And then when, when something's going wrong, you can picture that color rose and, and get the feeling back into your body. Just simple response to stimulus. Nothing magic, you know, the way apple pie comes out and you have all these memories. Well, the idea is that you attach that loving feeling to a symbol that's less complicated than a situation like a rose. You picture the rose and, oh, you bring in the loving feeling. So, um, I'll end with that. Thank you for listening and I hope to talk to you again soon.